SAFM. Happy Tuesday to you, Mzansi. Welcome to Otherwise on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala. The show is produced by Hazel Makuzeni and Rob Parkin is our technical producer for today. Our contact details are 0892102010, email otherwise at safm.co.za, tweets at otherwise SAFM or at Shadow Twala. Today we ask if dementia is a normal part of aging and if the condition can be reversed. Karen Borotovic of Dementia SA shares her insights with us. May 15 is MPS Awareness Day, otherwise known as mucopolysaccharidosis. Ooh. Chairperson of the Rare Disease Society, Kelly Duplessis, explains how important early diagnosis is. And finally, are there restricted areas with regards to breastfeeding your baby? Well, Cecilia Makola, who's a mother, shares her experience with us. It is also International Nurses Day, and we salute those men and women who remain dedicated to their profession despite the challenges they face. So our lunch bite for today, being Africa Month, I promise that uh, my lunch bite is going to be a piece of music from different parts of the continent. And today I introduce you, if you don't already know Thomas Mafumo or the Lion of Zimbabwe, he's an African pop legend. His style, Chimurenga music, otherwise known as music of the struggle, first became popular in wartime during Zimbabwe's 1970s independence struggle. And uh, Thomas sees himself as a messenger for the people of Zimbabwe and his music, Chimurenga, is seen as a tool for change and a voice for those who can't speak for themselves.
Thomas Mafumo and the song is called Sweet Maria. It's a love song about a lady by the name of Maria and how he's so proud of his woman and the sweet love they share. Isn't that beautiful? Sweet Maria, that is music by Thomas Mafumo. When we come back, we go be, we, we find out more about dementia. And I, I want to know what the difference is between dementia and Alzheimer's after this. Otherwise, on SAFM. We find out today if dementia is a normal part of aging and can the condition ever be reversed. Joining me now on the phone is Karen Brokovitz, I believe, Executive Director at Dementia SA. Karen, welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Shadow. Thank you and hello to your listeners. I hope I didn't butcher your surname. Definitely not. <laughs> absolutely fine. I've been called worse things, but Karen is absolutely fine. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Please tell us, uh, what is dementia and what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Okay, so uh, um, to, to put it very simply, if one can imagine pasta, there's different types of pasta. So there's linguine, there's penne, there's spaghetti, mm-hmm. there's uh, fettuccine. All of them form part of the group of known as pasta. Mm-hmm. The same with dementia. Dementia is the global term that has in common the loss of thinking function and the loss of memory. Mm-hmm. So you get different types of dementia. So you have Alzheimer's disease, which mm-hmm. is the most common dementia. Mm-hmm. You get Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia. There's over a hundred different types of dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia. So it's a very, very vast field. That is exact, that's probably the best way to try and have people understand it. Well, you've done the best. I, I understand it fully now. And if I get it, then I'm sure everybody gets it. Because it's been a, a big question. You know, when we speak about Alzheimer's and then somebody talks about dementia, I've never understood. And you've just done done it, uh, done us uh, proud there for, for explaining it to us. But how do we diagnose it? And, and is it, is, does it gradually begin at a particular age? And the older you get, it, it worsens? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the important thing to know is, is that it's, uh, um, it's a common loss of thinking function, as I mentioned, and it's a progressive degenerative brain syndrome that affects the person's memory, it affects their thinking, it affects their behavior and emotion. So the important thing to know that, as I, as I said, it's progressive, and it doesn't just start with a sudden onset. If somebody does have sudden onset of some kind of memory loss or um, are disorientated or confused or highly agitated or anxious, that needs to possibly be checked out. It may well be some kind of infection um, and it may well be dehydration. And that we would term then possibly as being a delirium rather than a dementia. Mm. So it comes on slowly um, and it presents over over a, a number of months or, or years where you see changes in a person's behavior and there are 10 sort of warning signs that we that we uh, um, that we usually look at um, in terms of being able to to say well mom or dad or granny or grandpa needs some kind of assistance because you know they're missing a beast so those symptoms are really loss of memory um, their difficulty in performing everyday tasks and by everyday tasks, we talk about um, bathing, um, you know, daily activities of, 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 of living, um, making sure that they lock the door, um, that they are safe, that they eat regularly, that they're hydrated, that they're able to work their bank account, um, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, problems with language, not being able to get to certain words to describe something, mm. uh, disorientation, really not knowing of time and place, not really knowing where they are and where, where they, they should be, um, decreased judgment, keeping track of things, especially in conversations with people. That's how we usually sometimes pick it up is that sometimes a person with, with, with a dementia or somebody that is, is experiencing possibly early onset dementia will always zone out um, and they misplace things often, there's changes in mood or behavior, changes in personality and certainly lots of initiatives. So somebody who, for instance, loved, like my mother, loved cake decorating, all of a sudden lost all interest and was just, you know, not keen to know anything more about uh, cake decorating, packed it all away that was it and you so you've had personal experience with with uh, dementia yes absolutely my mother was diagnosed with um uh, uh with the um, alzheimer's disease um in 1992 um and she was at that time she was 62 years old and um she died when she was 83 so um so she she lived with the, the disease for 21 years I'm sorry to hear that, but it must be a difficult one for family and all associated with the patient. But before we even go there, who do you go to first when you when you see these warning signs? Do you go to a psychiatrist? Do you go to just a medical doctor? Which professional person do you go to? Well, I think the important thing is firstly to realize that there is some kind of challenge that the person is having difficulty, that there are those warning signs, and that they're happening on a regular basis. It's not just once that they misplace their keys, and now we need to go off to the doctor to go and see if there is something. It's not like that at all. It needs to be on a consistent basis and, and you know, happening regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what usually happens then is, is that it's the caregiver or the person around them that notices these things that has to go with to the doctor in order to give some kind of account of what they're experiencing and the changes that they're acknowledging um, within the person with dementia mm. um, or the person, you know, that they, they, their loved one who may have a dementia. So what the doctor would do is then take a, a, um, the usual um, a, a physical examination um, and then uh, blood tests. So there's a number of, of different, um, a battery of tests that the doctor would need to perform um, in order then to rule out certain other um, problems that medical conditions that could cause um, a dementia. So those are like thyroid problems, medication that needs to be tweaked that is not, uh, is not, quite, um, not quite right or needs to be upped or downed. Um, you know, diabetes, for example, um, heart medication. So all of those kinds of things need to be, need to be a full um, medical checkup first. And then thereafter, the doctor will perform a number of other cognitive tests. Um, and then he would then send, it, send the, the patient for further assessment, either to a neurologist or to a psychiatrist mm. or a um, neuropsychiatrist. Um, in order to um, to be able to get some kind of um, clarity on whether there is a problem with uh, cognition. Karen, is there a common age group that is more susceptible to, to this uh, disorder uh, more than others? I mean, are you able to give us a, a ballpark figure of an age group? 
Well, you know what the, the most important thing to understand, um, Shadow, and, and I think for all listeners out there, is that dementia is not a normal part of aging. We don't always, not everybody ages with the prospect of dementia at, in their final years. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, age is a very important risk factor, though, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, you know, we know that uh, um, one in 20 people over the age of 65, one in five over the age of 80, and one in three over the age of, of um, 85, mm. um, you know, will, will develop some kind of dementia. So age is the greatest risk factor. The important thing to know, though, is why that has become such an important, um, age is becoming such an important uh, uh, marker is just because our world populations are um, are aging. Mm. And the interesting fact is, is that populations are aging fastest in our poorest, in our developing regions. And what we've seen from the World Health Organization, who had their first World Health uh, Organization ministerial conference on uh, the global action against uh, dementia in Geneva on the 16th and 17th of March, we've seen nearly 60% of people with dementia are going to be living in low and middle income countries. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, that's really the frightening statistic. And it's making sure that our healthcare, the quantity and quality of health and social services are going to be sufficient to be able to, to, uh, to care for this burgeoning number of people. I do believe that uh, living under the the poverty line, if I may call it that, or being middle class, for instance, when we stress a lot about our future and not having enough money, do you think that exacerbates the, 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 the disease or the condition? I, I cannot say for sure, and I really am not qualified enough to, to say yes or no. But um, what we do know is, is that obviously a, um, a, a diagnosis sooner rather than later an earlier diagnosis is, is certainly um, something that needs to be done. Um, you know, there's a number of decisions that need to be make, made by family and, um, and changes to environment. Understanding the disease allows families to empower themselves on how to best care and cater for the changing needs of somebody um, living with dementia. And it's not all doom and gloom for people living with dementia. I think with the positive approaches, um, that are available through person-centered care and person and, and family-centered care, there certainly are a lot of um, valuable and positive ways in which we can engage with people with dementia. You mentioned that uh, the, this, this group is aging faster, but does it mean that they live longer? Absolutely they do, and that is the challenge, is because if they do live longer with the disease, with dementia, um, it makes it very, very difficult because that then puts a whole lot of uh, uh, strain on um, economic uh, situations mm-hmm. because sometimes uh, uh, a carer um, or a family member may have to stop working in order to care for that person at home. Um, so there is one person that has come out of the economy. So it's going to put huge, huge, huge strain on, um, on global economies and certainly small, uh, small families, medium-sized uh, uh, families in terms of who takes care, whether care is affordable, whether we've made enough provision in terms of our retirements and, and, um, and our future uh, uh, financial needs planning, whether we are actually going to be able to afford um, to take care of somebody that, um, that has a dementia. 
Now, taking care of them becomes a challenge, as, as you may have experienced with, with, with your mother. And, and depending on, on the income that the family and the support that the, the, the patient has, usually they lock them up, you know, and or put them away and make sure that they don't have access because then they don't look after uh, the patient. It, it, it's just too much to do. Um, are there activities that would be suggested to keep keep them active and hopefully uh, I don't know if it's reversible or not but hopefully uh, bring back certain certain um, activities that, that that may may jog the mind sure well firstly your first point of, of locking them away and and uh, keeping them out of harm's way etc etc in terms of the older persons act that's absolutely regarded as um, elder abuse mm-hmm so one has to be very, very cautious um, when taking care of somebody with, with dementia that they are kept in a loving um, and a safe and secure risk-free environment. Um, you know, and, and types of abuse can include things like uh, um, uh, verbal, um, you know, physical, mm. sexual, mm. Uh, vulnerabilities mm. in terms of neglect, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a number of different things. Um, that one needs to look at that that are in terms of the law not prohibited for somebody that is you know an aging person. So, um, but certainly in terms of positive interventions um, that can be um, that can be uh, used by family. Um, you know, we all know that we all started off our, in in our lives with music and with the intervention of people singing and dancing and movement. Mm-hmm. And there certainly is. Um, those types of activities that will bring back and spark um, memories within the person with dementia um, that are positive memories. And that's what we always need to try and do, mm. is to understand that, you know, adding meaning and value and purpose to their day um, through small activities that are meaningful um, are, are important for the person living with dementia. So so really, it, it, it hits the memory part of the brain. And and the things to do then would be to re reactivate that that bit, or at least keep it active in some way. As you say, maybe the you know maybe pictures of family and those kinds of things may trigger something. Exactly. So so the lived experience of the person with dementia, picture albums, what they did in a in a previous career. You know, all of those kinds of things would, would help to rekindle um, a space or take them back to a time when when they were the person who they were, um, and and were were positive memories and and were good memories in a safe place. Because the world that they know it is constantly changing. It's a scary place. Okay. It's not something that um, that uh, uh, any of us would really like to be in. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's different and it changes all the time. So to be able to do those kinds of activities, and there's many of them, you know, looking through scrapbooks, um, looking through photo, you know, photo albums, um, you know, a number of different things. As long as there's no risk that the person would injure themselves. I mean, if they loved woodwork, for example, it's certainly not that you could let them loose in a garage, for mm, example, mm. with a lathe and whatever. But certainly under supervision, they could help to sandpaper things or varnish something or so, depending on their level of functioning. And, you know, it changes all the time. It, you know, there's good days, there's bad days. And everybody with dementia is a person with dementia. 
nobody manifests it in exactly the same way as another person. And it's that uniqueness and that, uh, um, that um, individuality that is so important in the care of somebody with dementia. It's not a one size fits all. Karen, do we have evidence of, of, of dementia uh, affecting younger people? There absolutely is. And it's because of, of the amount of awareness that is actually an education that is out there done by global organizations, international organizations, and local community organizations like ourselves, for example, Dementia SA, that are um, allowing people to recognize the symptoms um, and the signs that much earlier and to go and have their memories checked out. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you manifest any of those 10 warning signs, that it definitely will be a diagnosis of a dementia. And it's always best to have it seen to and checked out before rather than, because it could, as you mentioned earlier, be a reversible um, you know, type of memory loss or, or, or so. Um, and you know, those we know, things, uh, people who have diabetes, and who experience uh, memory loss as a re- result of sugars that are, are not properly managed, um, would also, you know, um, understand what, what that kind of, of, of memory loss is. Highly stressed uh, um, individuals that have got very pressurized jobs, um, et cetera, et cetera. Vulnerability is greater mm. to experience memory problems. Mm. But I think that, the, you know, the most important thing is, is that, you know, to go and get a diagnosis. But we are seeing mild um, cognitive impairment, which sometimes and, and in most cases is a precursor to, to development of a dementia. Um, but then also the, um, the young onset dementia, as we saw in the case of the movie Still Alice, mm. where she developed it at a, at, a, at a younger age. So usually before the age of 65, my mother was a case of young onset dementia. Now, Karen, reversibility of it all, can, what, what, what can we do to slow it down? Uh, are there any types of foods as well that can be consumed that may assist in slowing it down or total reversal? Well, in terms of reversing it, absolutely not. Unfortunately, there are no cures. Um, but what we do know is, is that lifestyle that people, um, that people take on and people live um, certainly do contribute to the way in which we're going to be aging. So things, for example, like uh, um, uh, alcohol, um, exercise, etc. healthy heart is a healthy mind and a healthy brain. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same thing. Keep it stimulated, keep using it, um, you know, stretch it, learn new skills, uh, learn a new, new hobbies. Just extend yourself that much more. Um, mm-hmm. That you are, um, that you possibly are, um, you know, just pushing the boundary a little bit more out of your comfort zone and learning the new skills to build new neural pathways. Where do we find more information? And I feel that we need to continue talking about this another time. But I, I really want, we, we've run out of time for this one. And I really would like to direct people um, to finding information. Is it mm-hmm. your website maybe that may help? Absolutely. We have three uh, ways in which uh, people can contact us. Mm-hmm. So they are able to, to, um, to access us on our website. It's www.dementia, www.dementiasa.org. Mm-hmm. And we have a national helpline, and that number is 0860 
0614-669-679. And the other way is to email us on info at dementiasa.org. Oh, fantastic. And, um, and those who, who, um, who are in the Gauteng area that would like to join us for the um, 702 Walk the Talk, you know, we'd also like to, to um, help create awareness through that as well. Well, so thank you so much well. for your time, Karen, and thank you for sharing this important information with us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Shadow. Thank you for your care. You take care now. I'll give you back those numbers in a bit. Now, for support, awareness, education, counseling, training, and advocacy, uh, contact Dementia SA and info at dementiasa.org is their email address. Uh, Go to www.dementiasa.org and or the National Helpline 0860-636-679. Now we're going to be talking about mucopolysaccharidosis and otherwise known as MPS. It is uh, MPS Awareness Day on the 15th of May annually across the globe. And uh, Kelly Duplessis joins us now to firstly explain what it is to us. And she's the chairperson of the Red Disease Society of South Africa, which aims to assist patients and families affected by rare conditions. Kelly, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kelly, please, please explain. Mucopolis sounds like, uh, what, what was the expedilidocious or what, what was that word? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is quite a mouthful. Yes. So, um, MPS is a, it's a collection of inherited and congenital metabolic disorders, um, which is ultimately from an enzyme deficiency in the body. And this, uh, will cause organ damage and damage to the tissues. So basically, because of the lack of enzyme inside the body, it would generally break down waste inside the cells. But mm. because it's not there, it causes the toxic waste to accumulate, and that eventually causes muscle and organ damage. And how does it? But can it be identified before birth or or at birth? And is there anything that can be done about it? Well, it is a genetic condition, so it is it is passed through um, obviously from parent mm. down to child. Mm. There is a twenty five. It's recessive, so there's a twenty five percent chance that if both parents are carriers, the child will be born with MPS. But uh, so, if in the event that you are aware that it runs in your family, then obviously um, uh, prenatal testing is available. But other than that, really, ninety five percent of cases are taken by surprise because they're not aware of the fact that they were carriers. And uh, it's ultimately when a child is born with this condition that they're only then um, brought aware of the condition. What are the challenges to the child born with MPS? Well, um, some of the major signs and symptoms include um, short stature, coarse facial features, enlarged liver and spleen, which is what we often um, see, uh, joint stiffness and immobility, and uh, skeletal deformities and abnormally shaped bones. And then also hearing, vision and respiratory and cardio um, a function. So generally in South Africa, we see that children with um, with dysmorphic facial features coming forward, and as the um, as the toxic waste starts building up, you find that neurologically they start regressing. Um, they can initially move around quite a bit, and then you'll find that they stop walking and that sort of thing, and they become quite stiff. Um, and they it's a storage disorder, and when I say you can literally see it storing and um, 
once you've seen one MTS child, you, you will generally be able to spot another quite quickly in the sense that they, they infiltrate quite badly. So they, um, their hands and feet and everything look quite stiff and almost bloated, if I can call it that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a life-threatening disease, and uh, that's the major problem in that um, access to treatment is just so difficult. Of the various MPSs that are out there, um, four of them have treatment available um, via enzyme replacement therapy. But unfortunately, because of the excessive cost of the treatment, mm. many patients in South Africa are just not accessing drugs um, to, 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 you know, to solve the problem. We've only got three MPS patients in the country on treatment out of, I think, 12 patients. What happens to those? Obviously, they, they, they don't live too long than those that don't get the treatment. No, they don't. Um, this is a life-threatening condition, and it will it is fatal without treatment. So those kids, literally, that are not receiving treatment at the moment, are um, sub- it's a life sentence, really. So what, what are they supposed to do? What, what do we suggest they, what happens to those children that can't afford treatment? Well, I think um, a lot of work needs to be done in terms of lobbying medical aid and um, and government. This is a prescribed minimum benefit condition, so it's really not. It, it shouldn't be up for debate whether kids whether these kids get treated or not, because the, the legislature prescribes that TMD conditions need to be treated in full. Unfortunately, though, because of the rarity of the disease, um, a lot of the funders fall back on the efficacy study saying that there's not enough evidence to prove that the medication works. That's that's not really true. There's a lot of papers, given the amount of patients there are, but it's not something like asthma where you have numerous people publishing papers all the time because your your patient pool is so limited. Um, You know, you would anticipate around the world there should be only a 1,000 or so of these patients. So you can't expect to have the same amount of literature. And that is one of the downsides, and that is one of the things that the funders are often coming back with, saying, oh, you need, to, you need to provide us with more evidence that it works. If you speak to somebody like Oscar van Memerty, who was born with MPS, I'm sure you might know who he is. He's no, quite a, I, I, don't, quite a, I don't only know who he is. I love him. Yes. <laughs> he, he's been so, part of my life for a bit, actually. Yeah, so if you speak to somebody like Oscar, who was fortunate enough to undergo a bone marrow transplant when he was two, He'll tell you that uh, I think, you know, he's happy that that was done and that those steps were taken because he's still alive and he's Mm. thriving at the moment. You know what I mean? It's not to say, sure, I mean, there are risks and there always are with any treatment, but these kids need to be given a chance. And that's really what MPS Day is about on Friday. It's standing behind these patients and getting the public to be aware of the fact that there are many patients out there who do have treatment available that are not able to access it. And lobbying and just showing support and you know um the, uh, the theme for this year is to wear purple on friday in, in aid of mps patients around the world so partake um take a picture of yourself in something purple and tag it to our facebook wall let these patients know mm-hmm. that they're not being forgotten even though they may feel like they have been does early diagnosis make it easier to treat or would give the child better opportunities in in life Absolutely. Um, Early diagnosis is critical purely because of the fact that it is something that progresses. So the longer the the gags store inside the body, which is this waste that, you know, is produced, the more damage gets done. If if you catch the disease early enough, um, it's almost 100% reversible. It'll never be 100%, but the outcome is really, really good. But in the event that you had a child who's, you know, nearing their early teens, 
that's never been treated, the outcome is much less promising um, because of the fact that the diagnosis was not made early enough. So that's another huge challenge we have in South Africa. There are testing programs available for doctors out there who may be listening who think that they might have patients. Contact us. We can put you in touch with testing companies. That, that allow for the testing of these conditions to be done early and quickly to make sure that patients get access to treatment early enough. Well, looking at Oscar, I think I think he's he's so encouraging us because of his attitude, firstly, but also encourages us to to do more because um, of you know the, of the possibilities of what these children could become. So you know he's a role model for the younger ones. Absolutely, and Oscar's our ambassador for MPS and. His story is of such an encouraging nature. I mean, obviously, the family lost his um, older sister to the same condition. Mm. They both underwent um, a bone marrow transplant at the same time, and unfortunately, she picked up a, an infection afterwards that ultimately took her life. Mm. So, um, you know, they they have a, a story. They can they can talk about the loss and they can talk about the hope. And so, really, they I mean, it's a beautiful story that they tell. And I think. Like you said, his personality really just encourages you. So infectious. What circumstances you're in to just really face the world, you know, head on and enjoy and live. Okay, so Kelly, what do we do on Friday? Wear purple, take our pictures, put them on Facebook. What else? Absolutely. Um, they, if you would like to donate, um, we are currently obviously taking in funds to try and assist these patients, particularly that are not accessing treatment. Um, with help with mobility aids, etc., as we as we lobby to get them treatment. So, if anyone would like to donate, they are more than welcome to visit our website, which is www.raresdiseases.co.za. And uh, there is a donation portal on the site that you can donate, and uh, just use the reference MPS, and we will make sure that those funds get reserved specifically for the use of these patients. And otherwise, um, just be part of um, the social media campaign. You know, tell somebody else about the condition. Share our stuff. Share our awareness stuff. Help people become aware of, the, of these conditions and help patients access us that might be diagnosed out there that don't know that we exist. You deal with rare, disease, rare diseases and just not out of your loving uh, to give back, but more there was a personal story of Juan, huh? Correct, yes, my son. My son has got a sister condition, so to speak, to MPS, which is known as Pompe disease. Mm-hmm. And when he was diagnosed, there was really no support available for us. And that is why rare diseases, the Rare Disease Society came about. It was, it was out of desperation. Um, and, the, uh, you know, the, the need to want to help other patients in similar shoes to us. And I can say that in the two years that we've been about, really, we've, We've come into contact with so many rare conditions, and when you tell the international community about the conditions that we're seeing in South Africa, they're shocked because they don't even find them overseas. So we're really doing well to identify our patients to a large extent, but we can always do more. Well, I, we salute you. We salute you, Kelly, and, and good luck with, with your son. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk to you some more as, as you you know, reach out to South Africa to, to respond to your calls. But thank you so much, and good luck for Friday. We'll be taking pictures. Thank you so much, Shada. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Kelly.
Kelly Duplessis of uh, the Red Disease Society of South Africa and you may find them on www.reddiseases.co.za do respond to a call to wear purple on Friday find them on Facebook post your picture and um, I, I, I love I love uh, young von Memmerty Oscar who I, I tell you when you see him when you engage him then you'll know you've got to do something we'll take a break and we're back after this otherwise on now, I was minding my business on social media. You know, I, I'm a voyeur. I look, I look through and see what's interesting. Then I bump into this, this, this uh, piece uh, by by Cecilia Makola. She says, "I was told not to breastfeed in public." Um, so I thought, "What is that?" So I invited her to talk to us, Cecilia. It's a shadow. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How's your baby? She's well, thank you. How old is she? She's a year and a month now. And so tell the story and, and, and don't tell us where, but, you know, just tell the story to us. Um, well, just shadow, I was taking my baby for um, a medical checkup and so I was in a medical facility. Mm-hmm. And there I am breastfeeding because she's wanting to, to feed. Mm. And I have uh, a member of staff coming through to me to say, stop breastfeeding here, go breastfeed there at the nurse's station where there's a curtain because there's a complaint. And then she just goes. There's no engagement, no discussion. And, so um, tell me, tell me, tell me, there, there are other patients waiting with you in this doctor's rooms. Yes, I'm just waiting um, outside the the doctor's room, um, waiting for my turn. Are there females and males, or is it just females? Uh, it was majority males. I'm sure there was probably one or two males mm-hmm. because it's a medical it's a medical center. Um, so you told to go behind. It wasn't even something that was conscious in my mind to say who is here mm. before I breastfeed. Um, and so I wait for my turn, and then I have the consultation with the doctor. And afterwards, I I talk to her to say, listen, this is what I've just experienced. I'm very uncomfortable with it. Um, what is the company policy around? such an issue because as a medical uh, facility um, I know that they put up posters every breastfeeding month Mm -hmm. to say moms we encourage you to breastfeeding the breast is best but then I get told to go and sit behind a curtain in a nurse's station how then is that encouraging breastfeeding and but tell me Cecilia tell me did 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 you move eventually to go and breastfeed behind the curtain? No, I didn't. Do you know who laid the complaint? I don't know. Like I said, the the staff member just came to me to instruct me to go to sit somewhere behind the curtain and that there was a complaint. She didn't even give me an opportunity to ask who has given the complaint and maybe I could have had that conversation with that person to say, but what bothers you? with what it is that I'm doing. So and your doctor says what when you've told her? Um, then the doctor says, I must understand that as a medical facility, they cater for different cultures. Uh-huh. And um, some cultures are comfortable with being nude and the Western culture, and those are her specific words, the Western culture is not comfortable with with nudity and then I say but I wasn't naked 
I simply took out my breast and my baby was on the breast the whole time. So there was um, no nipple when, there was no nipple visible, which I think is, is regarded as no nude. Nipple, there was no nipple visible, so shadow. So immediately when the baby finished, I put my breast my my breast back into in, 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 into covers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then she also says that my thinking is progressive. And I must remember that other people's thinking is not as progressive. Oh, my goodness. To which I said, but you work for an organization that I deem to be progressive, which is why I come here for medical treatment, because you are a progressive company um, and I will get best treatment. Um, And to which she answers, well, the the different cultures that we cater for here um, means that um, we have to be conscious of all of the cultures. And uh, when I ask her, but what does that mean about malculture? If you're going to talk about culture as the reason why you want me to go there, isn't that saying one culture is better than another one or is more protective than another one? Hmm. But hmm. she didn't have a very concrete answer for that one. Well, why did you and, ask her if the complainant could go behind the curtain so they don't see you breastfeed? Well, that's what I said said, well, I think that as, a, as an institution that is pro-breastfeeding, that supports moms to breastfeed, um, you as a company who I deem to be progressive should be educating all the people that come here to say breastfeeding is best, it is good, and if the mother wants to do it here and not in the bathroom, it is perfectly okay because that is what we support. Um, so, Cecile, um, what, what if, and, and I, I suppose there's a fixation with other cultures when, when it's called breastfeeding, because you're not breastfeeding, you're not st- sticking a breast in your child's mouth, but you are baby feeding, right? Yes, and that's, that's what I, I think we should be calling it. It's baby feeding because that's exactly what it is. You are feeding a baby in the same way that a mom that bottle feeds is feeding their baby. We don't get moms that are bottle feeding get, getting told to go and sit behind a curtain. And yet, that the the, the healthiest and option yet, the healthiest option is to baby feed on the breast. But on what the are you, breast, and then you get um, reprimanded or told to go into hiding to do that. And and my concern is if we are advocating, even the Department of Health, they keep on telling us breast is breast, breastfeed your baby, but. You can't be encouraging breastfeeding and in the same breath saying go and do it behind bars. How are you encouraging that? So what? Yeah. what, what what's your next? Uh, what's your next move, Cecilia? Because obviously you're not. You're going to have to change and and be the change that we want to be, uh, and and change that we want to see. So I'm challenging you, who 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 had this experience. To, to put up a fight for those moms that still need to baby feed as freely as they can in public. So what, 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 what are you going to do about this? Well, Shadow, that's the reason why I wrote the article, because I said, you know what, I can't sit at home and be angry about this experience. Let me talk to other moms. Let me write about my experience, get other moms to talk, and so that we can normalize breastfeeding in public Mm. and then I've also sent my complaint and my experience to the institution to say what are we going to do and I'm including myself in that because if I can help them 
with plans. I come from a transformation background. I can t- help them with getting out a message through to their staff and to the public to say, best free, best free <laughs> baby feeding is best and let's all do it anywhere, any, anytime when the baby wants it. And we see all the time, Sis Shadow, I mean, if you look at the pictures that are all over the media now of the ladies that were scantily dressed at the Met Gala, Mm-hmm. Nobody is saying, oh, let's put those away. Let's not show them. But we're looking at them and we're putting them on our Facebook pages. We're tweeting them. But, and yet, when you're doing the most natural thing that is nurturing, that is growing an individual, we get told that's a bad thing to do. You can't, we can't see the breast. Sizi Lemakola, I'm watching this space. Please let us know if you get any responses from the facility or the institution, and uh, we'll follow it up with them. But let's hear what they, how they respond to you. Definitely, Sister. I will keep you up to date, and I encourage all the mothers to hashtag breastfeed anytime, anywhere, with a picture of themselves breastfeeding, because we have to normalise breastfeeding in public. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your letter, actually. I'm glad you wrote it. And, 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 and just, you know, just show it off. Feed your child, please, wherever. We'll, we'll be behind you. Take care. Cecilia Makola there. Huh?